Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to our last episode of season, what, seven we're on now? Yeah. Uh, our Old Testament seven. overview, and we're actually finished with the Old Testament proper. But there are some passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that help us to kind of fill in the gaps between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. If you're reading through the Bible straight through, you get to the end of Malachi, and then there's this page in your Bible that's like, the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And you've actually time warped like 400 years or so forward in time to now John the Baptist is coming on the scene, yep. and now Jesus is coming on the scene. And there's a lot that happened in that time period where we don't have like historical books saying, okay, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened. But there's a lot going on that we can piece together from the Old Testament prophecies and some of the New Testament things that just say, hey, here's how, here's how it was. And also from a little bit of secular history, uh, because there's a lot going on in the world between uh, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Yeah, it's a really beautiful thing that the scriptures speak to what happens during that time. We're not left guessing, but it was actually prophesied what was going to occur. And one of the clear places to see that prophecy is in the book of Daniel, which we've already talked about briefly in a previous episode this season. But we specifically want to focus our attention on Daniel chapter 2 that is going to give way to four kingdoms that are eventually going to come into power throughout the rest of the history of the Old Testament and following up into the New Testament. Yeah. So Daniel chapter 2 is uh, where the king of Babylon um, has taken Daniel and a lot of other Jews into captivity. And God gives Daniel uh, a great opportunity uh, to, to be an influence to the king. And the king has a dream that he can't figure out, but he won't tell his, you know, his interpreter guys even what the dream is. But the Lord gives Daniel an understanding of what it is, and we're just going to skip through to the interpretation of the dream here. We won't read the whole thing. But um, look at what this says here in uh, Daniel chapter 2. We'll pick up reading in verse 36. And this is Daniel speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. It says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. 
It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And just as you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Okay, so we start off with the very first of the the kind of kingdoms here, and that is the Babylonian kingdom. And it's going to be this this head of gold, which I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar really liked hearing that, didn't he? <laughs> that he he is the head of gold there at the end of verse 38. And Babylon or Babylon Babylon was truly the fulfillment of that. I mean, they took over a lot of the known world at the time there, and Israel and Judah will eventually fall captive to them as a punishment for their unfaithfulness. While also God is able to use this wickedness for His own purposes. And so Babylon is the first fulfillment of, of this dream that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has had. Um, moving into after that are the, this kind of the second part of that statue, and that's going to be this bronze, this kingdom of bronze. Uh, and that's going to be the Medes and the Persians. Or silver. Or sorry, yeah. Excuse me. So, so much different metals going on it in this is, section. It is, it yeah. is. Uh, but the Medes and the Persians, and we'll get into more details about those guys here in just a little bit. And what's interesting is actually Daniel lives through the transition of these two kingdoms. Uh, in Daniel 5, mm-hmm. we have the story of the hand writing on the wall, you know, with King Belshazzar. Well, and he's like, that, this night, your kingdom's going to be taken away. And that was the transition between the Babylonian Empire and then when they're sacked by the Medes and the Persians. And the Persian kings take over. And we've mentioned several of those Persian kings in a couple episodes ago when we went through the return from captivity and talked about, um, you know, these different guys, Darius, Artaxerxes, uh, who are Persians. And they were the ones who eventually allowed the children of Israel to go back to the promised land. I mean, it was Cyrus, king of Persia, who made the decree initially for them to go back. And so, again, all of this world history is playing into uh, the story of God's people uh, because they live through this. But really, once they get back into the land and they're rebuilding the temple and the walls and all this stuff that we talked about, that's all really during the Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. And so that leaves like these two other empires, the the belly and thighs of bronze, which would be the Greek empire, Greece, and then the legs of iron and clay, feet and toes of iron and clay, and that's going to be the Roman empire. And it says specifically in the days of the Romans that the eternal kingdom is going to come. And that was the rock that comes down and breaks the statue in pieces and then turns into a huge mountain that fills the earth. Um, And so Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, is just laid out for us in Daniel chapter 2. And again, this is amazing prophecy because Daniel's living during the time of Babylon. It's like, well, how can he know all these centuries of world history that are going to happen? It's because the Lord, as as it says in Daniel, he rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. Uh, God knew what was going to happen in world history before it happened and was already planning to send his son during the time of the Romans. So Daniel 2 is just really helpful to kind of lay out what's happening in the future. And what's important to notice, too, as Stephen read 44 and 45 for us there, these kingdoms of men will not last. They will not stand. There is a bigger and greater kingdom coming that will be everlasting. And, of course, that is the kingdom of God that Jesus will bring on scene for us whenever we get into the New Testament. 
And also, I'll say here, uh, we might talk more about this in a second, is that when you read the back half of Daniel, things are very figurative. It's a series of prophetic visions that largely have to do with the nations that Nebuchadnezzar's dream had to do with. But there's a lot more detail given, and there's different animals that represent more specific things, um, like a goat that has a big horn and it splits into four, which is Alexander the Great, and then his kingdom splitting into four. And you go read Daniel 11 with the king of the north and the king of the south, and you're like, what is going on? But you go back, and you can match this up with incredible accuracy to the, the, the kingdoms of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Ptolemies ruling down toward Egypt, and the Seleucids reigning up toward the north, Syria, north of Israel. And the Bible is not silent about the 400 years of silence. Yeah. I mean, all this stuff is after Malachi, but it's prophesied in Daniel. And we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty on that today, but if you ever get a chance to look up some good material um, on Daniel 11 and uh, really the previous chapters as well, Daniel 7 through 11, really give us a really good rundown of especially the interactions between Persia and Greece and then after uh, Alexander the Great and the splitting up of the Grecian Empire. So all of this is setting the stage for the time of Jesus. And the thing we want to note about all this is that God knew exactly what was going to happen. If you were living in those days, it probably would have felt like insane political upheaval. World empires conquering other world empires, languages changing, culture changing. And you're like, what is going on? This is like chaos. And God has already said, no, I'm in control. I'm taking care of my people during this time. And all of it is going to bring about the setting into which he's going to send his son, Jesus. Yep, that's exactly right. So I think one of the best ways we can kind of go from here is by taking a look at some of the different things that popped up in between the Old Testament and New Testament. And we'll take some pit stops and we'll be looking at these various different time periods of the Greeks and the Romans as we go. First thing I think that's noteworthy whenever you turn your pages to the New Testament is Jesus and the, the disciples they keep going into these things called synagogues. And uh, that follows right into the book of Acts. I mean, that was one of Paul's favorite places to go whenever he entered into a city. Because traditionally, who was going to be at the synagogues? Jewish people were going to be there. And it's like, why all of a sudden are these like meeting places showing up all over the place in the New Testament that were unheard of in the Old Testament? You don't see the word synagogue in the Old Testament. And it really comes from the history of God's people being scattered across the world at that point. Mm-hmm. Wherever the Babylonians came in and took captivity of uh, Judah and the southern tribes and all of Israel, scattered them across the place, some of them will come back to Jerusalem, but a good number of them don't come back. Mm-hmm. A lot of them stay in these foreign lands that they've been scattered across while trying to maintain their faith in Yahweh. And what comes with that is the need to worship their God and the need to study Torah, the law, and the prophets, and to take a look into what God's will for them is. And so what appears to have happened between the Old Testament and New Testament, likely uh, starting with Babylonian captivity, is these gathering places, that's literally what the idea of a synagogue is, a congregation, a congregation, a gathering, popped up and... for lack of a better term, it's kind of like them going to church. You know, it's, it's, it's them finding local people that believe religiously the same things, and they're coming together to worship Yahweh. 
And when we get to the New Testament, we get a little bit of insight as to the kind of things that were going on in the synagogues. Yeah. I mean, this is where Jesus begins his ministry in some ways. In Luke 4, he stands up in Nazareth and reads Isaiah, in Isaiah 61 and says, Today this scripture is fulfilled. But it's these synagogues. There were local ones, even closer to the temple. Um, but they're also scattered throughout, and it gives a foothold for Paul to go to these cities and start to make converts to Jesus, the Messiah. Um, one thing that's just interesting as we pick up on these little details is like there were rulers of the synagogue. So like there was some other structure and organization that developed in Luke 8.41 and other places. It talks about the ruler of the synagogue. Um, they did also allow guest speakers. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Paul's big sermon in Acts 13 is delivered in a synagogue when they say, hey, do you have any word of exhortation for us? Like, Do you want to you want to stand up and tell us something. And so it's also that that gives Paul an opportunity to tell people about Jesus and how he fulfills the Old Testament, particularly to these Jews. And it's also interesting that it's during this time where they're away from the temple, where the priests would have been teaching the law, and a, a lot of places maybe not have had all of the law or all of the you know scrolls of the prophets or things like that. And so oral tradition was a big part of what would go on in these synagogues. And so with that comes the danger of getting away from the text and developing your own spin on things or expanding the things. And so when Jesus comes on the scene in like the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you've heard that it was said, and it's kind of a mixture of the Old Testament, but also of not the Old Testament, not God's law, these other traditions seep in. And people have a hard time distinguishing between what is actually the law of God and what's just these long, longly held uh, over a period of decades or centuries oral traditions. Well, and what's happening is that in all these synagogues, there are rabbis, um, teachers, men that are standing up and teaching on whatever they would like to talk about. And it's going to be a combination of scripture, like Stephen said, but it's also going to be combined with these oral traditions, other known, otherwise known as the Talmud, or in some cases yeah, the Mishnah. They end up being written down in the Talmud. Yeah. Exactly. And so these oral traditions end up getting preached as if they are the Word of God. And we'll get into that more a little bit later, where Jesus is going to have to call them out for that. You all have it backwards. You're not supposed to put traditions ahead of the commandments. The commandments are supposed to go before the traditions. And that gets messed up, really, in this time of synagogues that we're talking about. Yeah. And so it's just helpful, again, you know, there's some that we know about this outside of biblical history, outside of the biblical text, but just from secular history. But understanding even just a little bit about how these things developed helps us navigate some of the drama that's happening in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And when you kind of know the backstory, it's like, oh, man, that's why that was so offensive. Yes. Or that's why that was so intense. Or they get mad about this or that. Um, so that's just helpful to see. And it's just so interesting. We'll talk more about the Pharisees. But, like, you see really a loose Jewish nation, it feels like, on the back half of the Old Testament. A lot of them are sinning. A lot of them, the, you know, the priests are involved in all kinds of things. But by the time you get to the New Testament, you're like, what? Did they do like a 180? Like, why are they all so like kind of strict and, and stuck up? And just why are they acting this way? And some of this history we're going to go into kind of explains why they developed some of the callous nature that like the Pharisees and Sadducees had. Yeah. Um, so that moves so, us into talking about the Samaritans. Yeah, and, and we do have them kind of kind of mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, but they play a much larger role in the New Testament, um, including some of Jesus' most famous teachings about like the Good Samaritan. Um, and the Samaritans come from, we can read about their origin in 2 Kings 17, 
Um, we're going to read this real quick. And so they're called the Samaritans because they're associated with the city of Samaria. And 2 Kings 17 tells us about the destruction of the northern kingdom. And the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. And it's Assyria who has come in and destroyed the northern kingdom, taken them captive. And now they resettle that land around Samaria. So let's uh, read 2 Kings 17. This is picking up in verse 24. It says, And the king of Samaria, the king of Assyria, excuse me, brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And then there's this episode where they're not following the law of Yahweh, and so these lions come out and kill them, and they're like, how do we get this to stop? Yeah. And so it's interesting here, um, verse 27, Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there. Let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So they're, okay, good. Well, now these Samaritans are learning about Yahweh and his ways, which they had a very, in, in Assyria, they had a very territorial view of gods. Like, oh, here's the gods of Assyria. Here's the gods of Babylon. Here's the gods of Egypt. Here's the gods of Israel. And oh, they're, they're God's mad at them. So go teach them how to, uh, you know, uh, make this God calm down. Uh, and so in verse 29, though, even though they're learning about Yahweh, it says, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities in which they lived. And so skipping down to the end of the chapter, this is 2 Kings 17, 41. It says, so these nations feared Yahweh and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. And so the Samaritans, they also end up intermarrying, is my understanding, yeah. with the people of Israel right. who were left in the land. And so they're kind of this like partly Jew, but partly pagan mix of religion and culture. And so when Jesus has this conversation with a woman at a well in John 4, all of this background comes into play, which we could talk about how they built their own temple on yeah, Mount Gerizim exactly. and tons of other stuff. There's a lot of background going into that, but these are kind of who the Samaritans are. Yeah, that's a helpful history. Uh, another helpful history to get into is the Maccabean period that you might have heard of before. And again, this is in between the Old Testament and New Testament, and it picks up in the Daniel 2 prophecy that we we're talking about with the Greeks. And one of the most famous military leaders in all of history, Alexander the Great. Uh, he comes on the scene, he takes up or takes over Persia, and he is going to end up becoming a ruler of Israel because he took over the land. And by the way, this is a really important thing to notice because one of the things that Alexander the Great is going to do when he takes over a city uh, is he is going to make that city speak Greek. That's really important to see because by the time Jesus gets on the scene in the New Testament and the Roman Empire comes into power, because of what Alexander the Great did, there is a common language among many of the nations, and that's koine or common Greek. How appropriate is that uh, for a common language to be there by the time the Son of Man that's going to be doing this great teaching is going to be there? I think that's really noteworthy, and you see God's hand in that. But Alexander the Great is going to rule for 12 years and eventually die. And when he dies, his empire is going to be divided among four of his generals. 
um, two of which is Seleucus, who rules Syria, and then the Ptolemy that rules over Egypt. And these are the guys we mentioned that are detail between their wars is in Daniel chapter 11. The kings of the north are the Seleucids, uh, and the kings of the south are the Ptolemies. Yes. And so, again, those are not Bible words, but historically that's who this passage in the Bible is talking about. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the Ptolemy, he's eventually going to invade Jerusalem on the Sabbath day and take the city, and he carries prisoners to Egypt, and then his son's going to take place. And by the way, Ptolemy is just like Pharaoh or um, Herod. Herod, you know, it, it's, title. it's a title, it's not a name. And so eventually um, there's going to be a guy in 175 B.C. named Antiochus, or also called Antiochus Epiphanes, who is going to rule Syria. And he hates the Jews, does not like them, and it really ends up persecuting them and prohibits Judaism tells the Jews that they are not allowed to practice their religion and in fact tries to get them to assimilate and tries to force them to worship Greek gods well as you can imagine that did not go over well for many of the Jewish people and some went with it but there was this old priest by the name of Matthias and he had five sons they were known as the Maccabees that led this revolt starting in 167 BC that went to 160 BC so a seven-year-long war with Messiah um, and his sons leading a revolt because they did not want to bow down to the Greek culture of the day. And that's what we call the Maccabean period. In 166 BC, Matthias will actually die, and his son Judas Maccabeus, a.k.a. the Hammer, I think that's kind of cool. Uh, which is what Maccabees means, the Hammer, yeah, right? So this he, is his nickname. He will take over for his father as general and continue leading these battles against the Syrians, and they will eventually win. In 165 BC, they march into Jerusalem and retake the city and purify the temple. And that is when they have this feast of dedication. Otherwise known. As Hanukkah. And Jesus actually celebrates this in John chapter 10 and verse 22. It's really cool to see Jesus partaking in this tradition um, that really is a cool staple in the history of the Jewish people. So that's John 10, 22. Uh, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So Jesus comes back to Jerusalem for this uh, Feast of, of Hanukkah. And so it, it's a really neat time in Israel's history where they came together. They did their best to kick the Syrians out, to purify, and to cleanse the temple. And this time in Israel's history is held in high regard. And understandably so. It's a, it's a really cool piece of their history. But what we have to understand from that period of history is it is going to shape a lot of the attitudes that we see in Jews once we get to the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes. And there's a few ways that manifests itself. Yeah, and so the, the fact that there were these military revolts, uh, political uprisings from guys like Judah the Hammer and Maccabee, um, really sets the stage because some people thought, oh, this is it. That he's the one who's going to deliver us. He, he may see the Messiah. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't the Messiah, of course. But it, it sets up expectations that when Jesus comes on the scene and is doing what the, they said the Christ would do, that people are like, oh, like, is this the Messiah? Is he going to free us from Rome? Is he going to be the new hammer who's going to get us out of this mess politically and physically and set up a new kingdom here in Jerusalem physically? that's going to destroy all the kingdoms of earth. Is that what Daniel is talking about with the rock that smashed you know, Rome and all this? 
And Jesus is going to defy all of those expectations. This might be a good point to mention as well that there was some other confusion about the Messiah and that they weren't expecting just one guy to fulfill all these different prophecies. It's really interesting to me that in John chapter 1, when they come to John the Baptist and they're like, hey, who are you? And they ask you, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Um, and he says, no, they don't stop there. And they're like, oh, okay, well, you didn't fulfill any of the prophecies. They, they move on to say, well, are you Elijah? And he says, well, no, no, I'm not Elijah, literally, physically. And they say, well, are you the prophet? Probably referring to Deuteronomy 18, the prophet like Moses that we talked about a while back. And so they were expecting different people to fulfill these different roles. Oh, there's going to be a, a Messiah like David. There's going to be a prophet like Moses. Elijah's going to come. And so there's a lot of confusion and different expectations. But one of the major expectations that the, the Maccabean period sets up is that the Messiah, the Christ, is going to be a political military exactly. leader who's going to lead his people in physical battle and whip up on the Romans and free the Jews. And I mean, how many times does Jesus have to remind his own disciples that that is not the case? Mm -hmm. Even leading up to the garden where Jesus is arrested, Peter draws the sword and cuts off the ear of that servant because he's ready to fight. He's Mm -hmm. like, no, this is 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 what he trained me for. And Jesus says, put your sword away. This is not not what we're here for. And it sends Peter spiraling and really the rest of the apostles as well because they don't know what to do. They're starting to to come to the understanding this kingdom he's talking about is more than just physical it it's a spiritual kingdom he's talking about and that defied all of the expectations that many had of jesus and jesus was really good at that he was really good at defying all the Indeed. expectations of himself. still is and still is that's exactly right but where we have to meet jesus at is ready to submit to who he is um and what he is and what his purpose for us is so it really, it, it comes full circle to us as well. Amen. So, oh, go ahead, Stephen. Sorry. Yeah, there's one of the other things we see as we enter into the New Testament is this family of rulers in Judea called the Herod family, or the Herods. There's and a there's, lot of them. Again, Herod's not one dude. Yeah, um, that's a whole clan. It's <laughs> a whole clan of people. But they rise to power during the Roman period before Jesus is born. And the first guy, naturally, is called Herod the Great. Um, and yeah. He's kind of the head of this family. And he gains a lot of influence with some of the different Caesars. And in some ways, it seems like as a political reward for that, he's kind of called King of Judea. So he's one of the rulers in that area local to Judea. And Herod the Great, kind of the father of this family of guys, is the Herod in Matthew chapter 2 who is so paranoid about another king being there that, you know, he tries to trick the wise men into finding out where Jesus is. They don't fall for it and go back, and he gets so mad that he slaughters all of the baby boys in Bethlehem under age two. And so that's just uh, tells you a little bit about this family, (laughs) and And it's not going to stop with him. And wouldn't you believe it that this is actually the same Herod who had a hand in the temple expansion Mm -hmm. as well? And so you kind of see, and this is so true of all the Herods, they're definitely Jewish sympathizers, and and some of them actually have Jewish blood in them. It's very interesting. Um, In fact, uh, one of them will later in the book of Acts be called a a Jewess, um, which is really cool. So this family sympathized with the Jewish people and specifically Herod the Great so much so that he had a hand in expanding the temple. And you might recall something that Jesus said in John 2, 20, 
um, or what the, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But the Jews reply to Jesus and say, it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Um, 46 years. And this is referring to Herod's temple that he will rebuild. Right. Well, and the thing is, they're not talking about Solomon's temple. That no. was destroyed in you know, 586 or so by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and they're not talking about Zerubbabel's temple from Ezra 3. Uh, they finished that temple in a lot less time than 46 years. What they're talking about is a construction project that Herod the Great had been working on. And so if you ever look at illustrations of the temple at the time of Jesus, you'll see that like there's the temple building, but then there's this huge complex of like all these courtyards and the porches, and there's a Roman uh, barracks that's also right there for the soldiers, which all of this will come into play in like the Book of Acts at different times. That This temple expansion that Herod did that took 46 years to complete, it wasn't building the temple itself, but it was building this expansion to the complex, uh, would include places like Solomon's Porch, mm-hmm. where the early church would meet. Yeah. Um, it included the barracks, where Paul was taken when the mob gets him, and he speaks to the people from the stairs of the barracks there in the temple complex. And so it's helpful to realize that when people talk about the temple in the New Testament, they're not necessarily talking about being inside the holy place or the most holy place. They're just talking about the whole temple area, arena, um, the, the complex where all of these different events happen in the New Testament. And if you would also believe it, Herod the Great had multiple wives, um, as many of the kings did in that day. Indeed. Uh, I think we read somewhere so much, so much as up to ten um, at least five we know by name, and he had multiple children with many of them, and several of those children will show up in the New Testament. Uh, one of those is um, Archelaus, 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 however you want to say that. And he's mentioned in Matthew two verse twenty-two. Um, Herod Antipas is another one that's really noteworthy, and all these guys, by the way, are called tetrarchs, which literally just means a ruler of a fourth part. Mm-hmm. So they governed a smaller region of the whole kingdom that they were given. So they yeah. were considered to be a lesser ruler than a king, but more like a governor almost might be the idea. Which your Bible in the back when the map section may have a map that includes like the, you know, Judea at the time of Jesus. And at least mine has some maps that include, here's the area of the four tetrarchs who uh, you think of Tetris for that right. thing. Yeah. Um, that, okay, here's where Herod Agrippa ruled or here's yeah, where Herod Antipas exactly. ruled and things like that. It is helpful again just politically to know what's going on in the background so that these stories in Acts especially just jump off the page and you're like, oh that's who that is. It's and really cool. The other thing to realize is even though they're all called kings, they all still ultimately answer to the emperor, the the Caesar mm-hmm. of Rome. So they're that's working important. for the man. Exactly. Uh, but Herod Antipas, one of the children of Herod the Great, is going to be the one that beheads John the Baptist because his wife, uh, the wife of his brother Philip, wanted him to do so. And so that's recorded in Matthew 14 and also in Mark 6. That's right. And so Philip, Herod Philip, yeah, it's his wife that Herod Antipas had, and John the Baptist says it's not lawful for you to have your brother, Herod Philip's wife. Yeah. And so again, the drama in these families is fit for well, it's not really fit for TV. It's really yeah. terrible. But it's like, wow, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Like some of the crazy people and just the moral, ter- just terribly moral, immoral is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, not a good family. 
Then we're going to have Herod Agrippa, which is a grandson of Herod the Great, and Acts 12 going to be the one that rules all of Palestine, but has James decapitated, the, the, the Apostle James, and he ends up dying in Caesarea. And then Herod Agrippa I will have a son named Herod Agrippa II, which shows up on the scene with the Apostle Paul in Acts 25 and in Acts 26. And so Herod four Agrippa, generations right. of Herods that are interacting with people in the Bible. And Herod Agrippa I has two daughters that also show up on the scene in the book of Acts as well. And so several of them are showing up here in the scriptures. And uh, I, one time I had to go through and make an entire chart to kind of get the genealogy of all the Herods so I can just get them straight in my mind. So you can Google things like that tree. and figure them out. Yeah. Yeah. So the Herods are part of the political scene, but when you look to the Jews themselves, there are some new words that come up in the New Testament. Um, who are the Pharisees? Yeah. Jesus has a lot to say to the Pharisees. <laughs> they who sound are, like nice guys. Who are the Sadducees? <laughs> um, so what's interesting is the word Pharisee, it literally means a separatist. Um, so they are all about being separate, uh, which could be a good thing, but in this case, it's really not because of the direction they take it. Um, they're also associated with the scribes. Jesus will often say, you know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And what's his big, you know, uh, admonition against them? Woe to you, hypocrites. Hypocrites. Yeah. They, they're saying one thing and doing another. And they were big on, of course, the Jews, and they were very resistant to the Greek Roman influence, that they wanted the Jews to be separate. Uh, they wanted to, to get back to uh, the law, but not just the law. And this is the problem, is we talked about the oral tradition that developed in between the Old and New Testament. They held so tightly to some of these oral traditions that they exalted them above the law of God, which is really a temptation for any religious yes. group. Um, but the Pharisees are famous for it, and we even call it, oh, you're being Pharisaical, or that's Pharisaical. Um, they, they have a very bad name even today because of the direction that their teaching went. And Jesus comes on the scene, and a lot of what he's doing is correcting the misinterpretation of the law, the misapplication of the law, and the traditions that they had added onto the law that were never meant to be part of the law in the first place. Yeah, and so th that Jesus, this will be one of his biggest opponents that you see coming up over and over again in the scriptures. Which, by the way, we talked about the Talmud earlier that records some of these religious traditions, oral traditions. A lot of those were associated with the Pharisees specifically. So you can, outside of the Bible, read a whole lot more about the crazy minutiae of these Pharisaic traditions. So that moves us into talking about the Sadducees, which were pretty different from the Pharisees. That just literally means righteous. And they were associated a lot of times with the priests mm -hmm. and supported Greek influence. Um, and they were kind of more political than they were religious. And that's why they're called a sect. It's like they, they had an active role in politicizing in the Roman Empire and amongst the Jews. And, and what's really interesting, and there's so much more backstory on this, is that basically by the time of Jesus, the local politics had gotten so involved with the priesthood that they were the ones now appointing the priests. And that's one reason that you have like sometimes multiple high priests like almost at the same time, um, like Annas and Caiaphas that yeah. you see the interaction there. And again, one of them is kind of the former high priest, but the priestly role had really become so diluted at that point uh -huh. that it was more political than yeah. religious. I mean, it wasn't like the line of Aaron anymore and all of this. And so it's really sad to see how much things had gotten confused with everything that's going on. Um, 
in uh, these days. And, and, and so the, the Sadducees are mixed up with, with all that. And they had some different views, to say the least, and some views that contradicted what Jesus taught and what Jesus believed, and they will come to him with that. In Mark 12, whenever the Pharisees question Jesus and the Sadducees question Jesus, they give him this crazy hypothetical situation in, a, in an attempt to make the idea of resurrection being foolish. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of insight given to us in Mark 12, but also in Acts, uh, the 23rd chapter, in verse 8. Uh, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Uh, it's kind of a cool verse. It to- tells you the difference between the two. Yeah, it comes late in the story, but you're like, oh, that's that why makes the sense. resurrection was such a big deal. Right, so they didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, they didn't believe in an angel. Uh, they didn't believe in spirits, which is just a really interesting three things to not believe. Because you read the Old Testament, and you're like, how can you not believe in angels? They're yeah. like all over the place, man. And <laughs> even the resurrection, uh, Jesus, when he goes toe-to-toe with them on that, says, you don't understand the scriptures, do you? Uh, God said, or, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, speaking in the present tense there. Yes. And what's also interesting about this is just, re- if this is, again, from like world history, but the Greeks... The Greek culture and Roman to follow despised the idea of resurrection. Yeah. They're like, oh, you want to get rid of your body and like be done with that, be a disembodied spirit. And so that's why they oppose the idea of resurrection. And so the Sadducees, because they were kind of like, yeah, we're kind of with the Greek influence, they were being uh, molded by the culture. And this happened to the Christians as well. In like 1 Corinthians 15, the context for when Paul says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals is by people in Corinth who are starting to assimilate to the Greek culture of, no, resurrection's bad. We don't want resurrection. He's like, if you deny the resurrection, this whole thing falls apart. And so the Sadducees had already kind of gone that direction. Um, and so, of course, there's all this, this headbutting between the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, in the New Testament, even there in Acts 23, when Paul points out, oh, I'm here on on trial because of the resurrection, well, then that starts the Pharisees and Sadducees going at each other because of these religious differences and really political differences as well. So next is to talk about the Herodians who approach um, in the scriptures. And you guessed it, the Herodians liked Herod. Uh, They were kind of his followers. But as we discussed, Herod himself being a Jewish sympathizer of sorts, they were kind of like Jewish people. but they also had this political leaning toward Herod, which would naturally make them politically lean toward Romans. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees didn't like them, um, to say the least. And of course they didn't. I mean, the, the Pharisees hated the Romans because the Romans were governing them. That's not the way they wanted it. They wanted to be in charge of themselves. But the Herodians supported Herod um, in all that he did. And so when they come to Jesus, they try to trap him politically because it's the Pharisees and the Herodians that come ask Jesus the famous question about, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so they're like, all right, Jesus, you're going to totally offend somebody here. You're either going to say, yes, you have to pay your taxes, and that means the Pharisees are going to be even madder at you, or you're going to say, no, you don't have to pay your taxes. And there's the Herodians who are helping Herod and thus Caesar who are going to say, tax evasion, get him. You know, like, And so they think they've got him. And, of course, Jesus famously answers perfectly, you know, give to Caesar what Caesar's and give to God yeah. what's God's. And they marvel. They're like, whoa, Like, how did he get out of that one? Yeah. But without the political knowledge of what's going on there, it's easy to lose the drama of that moment when Jesus gives the answer about taxes yeah. um, because of these political forces that are going on in his day. Yeah. C- kind of closely associated with the Herodians and Pharisees, we talk about the zealots. 
And there, there's one mention of zealots in the Bible, and that's actually of one of the apostles, Simon the Zealot in Luke 6.15. Mm-hmm. And the zealots were this group of zealous individuals f- to fight against Herod and Rome and would even go as far as using guerrilla warfare to assassinate and kill people um, that were high up in the Roman ranks. And they truly embodied the, the Maccabean idea of, kick them out, uh, get them out, we got to fight against them. And it's so interesting that Jesus would call a zealot to be one of his 12 apostles. And at the same time, call Matthew a tax collector for Rome. <laughs> and Jesus expected these apostles of his to, to drop those worldly and political leanings for the sake of following this greater kingdom that is more everlasting than the ones that these men have been fighting for this whole time. Amen. If Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot can get along under the work of Jesus, so can we. Whatever other political leanings we may have, uh, we have to rally around the kingdom of God that's never going to be destroyed. Um, And that's what can bring different people together. Um, Unlike politics, worldly politics, uh, the politics of Jesus' kingdom are one that calls us out of whatever other allegiances we may have to serve him. The, the last group we'll talk about on this episode is a group that's not actually mentioned in the Bible, um, but that are called the Essenes. And they're kind of a quirky division of the Jews who are not talked about as much. And it kind of makes sense because they kind of lived isolated by themselves and had their own version of different things. Um, so they're almost like, you know, the Pharisees were separatists. Well, the Essenes were like monks. They're like way off by themselves. Um, and apparently some of them lived in caves along the Dead Sea. And their libraries were preserved in these caves. And this is cool because of the, a huge discovery was made. Yes. In 1946, there was a little boy walking through this valley throwing rocks, as little boys do. And he lobbed one rock up through the entrance of what looked like a cave and he heard a shatter and he was like huh wonder what that is breaking pottery so he goes up there calls attention to it and he has broken the pottery that contains within it many scrolls from these same people that we're talking about right now and guess what a great many of those scrolls had the old testament preserved like an entire school of Isaiah. It's incredible. Uh, several other discoveries. I mean, you can Google this. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Take some time to research that and even to get into some of the manuscripts that were preserved. But they far outdated some of the m- most modern ma- manuscripts, or sorry, oldest manuscripts that we had at the time. And it only confirmed for us how accurate the Old Testament had been preserved for us. Um, and so it's a wonderful discovery. You can research that on your own time. But uh, that truly is a, a cool thing that happened throughout history. Yeah. And so we just mentioned the Essenes because uh, of that discovery in particular that has been such a blessing to us and seeing God's word preserved and how the Lord has used all different kinds of people and groups throughout time to make sure his word is available accurately for all generations. Yeah. Um, so we hope that this is helpful. We realize that's a lot of history to bite off in an episode. But hopefully, um, you know, as you chew on these things, you can better start to understand some of the drama that's going on in the Gospels and the Book of Acts um, because of the world into which Jesus was born. At the exact time God wanted him to be, the fulfillment of all these prophecies through world history, and just to see that this book that we have, the Bible, is accurate, um, and it's from God. 
So Lord willing, in the next episode, we are going to get into a New Testament overview. Looking at it from... The next a, season. Yeah, next season rather. Oh. Yeah, we'll, we'll be looking at the New Testament then, Lord willing. If you're enjoying what you're here on the podcast, uh, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. If you'd like to study with us, if you have more questions about what you're hearing, please reach out, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies or church services, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.